Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sativa segment. I'm your host, Richard Chang. This is episode 12. Um, before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge that this episode is being fueled by a company called Cholson M&A Advisors. It's a local Dallas-based um, business brokerage firm that um, strictly uh, represents sellers of businesses who wish to seek assistance um, in selling their business. So if you're interested in contacting uh, Cholson M&A, feel free to find them on LinkedIn. They're listed. Um, and for the record, neither uh, neither of my two guests who are sitting here before me are in, is endorsing uh, any business or the Cholson m a in any way, shape, or form. Uh, today, we have two very um, distinguished individuals, one of which is a criminal defense attorney. His name is Jeremy Rosenthal. He is a partner at his law firm. And we have, um, for the first time, a state um, district court judge, um, Judge Thompson. Welcome, Jeremy. Welcome. Glad to be here. Thank yeah. you. And I've known each of you um, for a good amount of time. I, I obviously met Jeremy um, a long time ago when, um, before we both became attorneys. Uh, we were actually roommates in college. And now I have the privilege of having his um, speed dial number in case I ever have uh, a need for a criminal defense attorney. Knock on wood, I haven't yet, right? So, you know, but I do have your bat phone ready to go. And of course, I met uh, Judge Thompson a number of years ago at um, a Christmas dinner, and um, actually before she became a judge, um, and obviously uh, fostered that relationship with you over the years, and um, here we are. And of course, we're here to talk about cannabis. Let's do it. Let's do it, right. <laughs> well, tell, tell me a little bit about yourselves. I mean, I, Judge, why don't we start with you? How did you become a judge? T tell us a little bit how you become a judge. And, you know, you, you, were you a lawyer first? And how, tell us a little bit about the progression of your career. Yeah, I'm, I was an attorney first for, um, did family law for almost 15 years. Um, right. In Texas, we're unusual. We elect most of our judges. Um very low, um, the lowest level municipal court judges are uh, appointed by their municipality, but otherwise we pretty much elect the rest of our judges. So that's kind of strange. It's different in every state. Mm -hmm. um, so seven years ago, um, I ran uh, in Collin County and was elected. So I served their four-year terms at the district court level. So I served mm -hmm. my first four-year term, then I was reelected, um, and I'm in towards the end of my second term. So okay. I'm up again next year. So okay. we either... Um, the district court judges in Collin County are split into two groups who either run on the presidential ballot or with the governor. And I happen to be on the presidential ballot. So that will be fun next year. Yeah. Are so. you expected, um, are you expected, uh, I guess, a lot of people to run against you or is it going to be, how, how contested is it to help us educate us here? Yeah, it's, um, seems to be if you're on the governor's ballot, you are not contested. If you're on the presidential, you are, um, okay. there's, always the hope from whichever party doesn't currently have most of the, the people sitting that there'll be a sweep. It's happened in Dallas. They tried that in um, Colin four years ago, I guess, when we ran. So it's, um, we would expect to be contested. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that mm -hmm. judicial races and the people that sit in this position are virtually unknown to people. Mm. Um, as evidenced by the fact that the voter drop-off, we're at the way bottom of the ballot, and by the time they get down to us, most people have fatigue 
from the ballot and they don't even get down to us. Half of it is, I think, that just boredom by the time you get to the 35th race on the ballot. Half of that is they don't know anything anyways and they don't want to vote for somebody they don't know anything about. So they just skip us a lot. So um, I don't think contested races are a bad thing. I help, I think it helps us educate the public more about what it is we do um, and who we are. Uh, but there are limitations on it. There's a lot of stuff, kind of like today, there's, there's certain things we can't talk about you know, opinions and cases that are pending before us. We can't give you much that gives you some idea of how I think I might rule. So, you know, a lot of my answers are the law says, <laughs> right, <laughs> and whatever right. that is. Well, you know, feel free to, you know, um, alter your answers depending on how much you can share with us. But I want some free legal advice today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. Um, tell us, tell us a little bit about your bench and what type of cases do you usually hear? I, my understanding is that you hear cases of all civil matters um, and criminal matters, right? We do. I, I run the gamut. So okay. Collin County, we're almost 50-50. About half of our judges are what we would call a general jurisdiction bench. I have one of those. So we do um, civil matters with um, an, an unlimited amount in controversy. So there's no cap on what I can hear. There's some um, lower jurisdiction level courts called a county court at law, and they have a cap. So mm -hmm. if the amount between the two civil parties or businesses um, gets over a certain amount, then they can't be in county court. Our district courts don't have that. So we get mm -hmm. cases with hundreds of millions um, in controversy sometimes if it's tax cases or um, big business disputes, things like that. I also do family law. So anything related to families and and kids. So divorces, yeah. child support, any of that kind of stuff. And then I have a felony level criminal caseload. So that county court I mentioned, they do misdemeanor cases. At the district court level, we do felony cases. Okay. So there's seven of us in Collin County that handle everything. And then we have some other judges that handle just civil, just family, and, and are broken out that way. So let me ask you a question. If it's a, if it's canvas related case, it's a misdemeanor case. Uh, that wouldn't make it before your court. Correct. However... If it's a cannabis related matter and it rises to the um, to the threshold of a potential felony, that would end up in your in your court. That's correct. Okay. All right. Well, very good. Thank you, uh, Judge Thompson. Um, Jeremy, tell me, yes, tell, tell the public a little bit about your criminal defense practice. Um, I know a little bit about it, but um, tell us what type of cases you handle, what type of clients you typically represent. Well, okay, so. Um, as a criminal defense lawyer, uh, our law firm, we have about nine and a half lawyers. I say a half because we have one lawyer who's- Now, that's pretty big for a criminal counsel. defense firm, correct? It's, an, it's, it's not your conventional business model. Okay. That, that's accurate. Uh, we try to, to have a 360-degree uh, coverage of, of criminal law cases. Uh, so we, we try to cover anything and everything criminal. Um, what, what I tell folks is that we help you at three in the morning when you're getting your stomach punched in at the police station, mm -hmm. all the way to the Texas court of criminal appeals, all the way to the fifth circuit in new Orleans and, and everywhere in between, maybe one day, the U S Supreme court, we would do it if, if we had to. Uh, but, uh, that, that extends to juvenile cases. It extends to state level felony cases, uh, federal cases, uh, you name it, we do it. Okay. Well, by the way, I, I have a story to share with you. I, okay. I, I had a quasi-criminal matter a couple of days ago. I was in – Okay. I, I think I told you I was in Los Cabo uh, yes. recently. Well, I was held at gunpoint. Okay. I'm, that's terrible. I'm sorry. But it was it was with the, uh, the hotel security guard at night, and I was walking from the beach, and I was walking up to the property. I was actually already technically already property because I was, a, I was a guest, and the security guard who wasn't supposed to have a gun – 
Um, in fact, they, their policy is that we're, we don't our security guards do not carry guns. In fact, they don't even carry pepper spray. So the security guard is who pulled the gun on you? Yes. You didn't tell me that. You told us you were. We were talking about it a little bit beforehand. You uh, you you left you left that zinger out. Yeah. No. It was the hotel security guard, and um, he he held the gun, and I he asked me what I was doing, even though I was a guest. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, this is at the Nobu Hotel in Los Cabo. Okay. And I told the management. So a real dive. Yeah, a real dive. That's right. They didn't have any amenities whatsoever. And they charged uh, a lot of money to be there. And of course, when I told them about it, um, they did this much. They didn't talk to the guard. They didn't... Uh... Well, they, lo- they, they, they looked at the, um, the surveillance video. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I want to ask to see the video. The video isn't available. And so did the guard, did he, did he want money from you? Did he want something you know, from you? He, he just, he just pulled his gun on you. He just asked me what, what I was doing there. I said, I was going to, to my room, which ironically I was looking for somebody. Okay. I was, I was looking for somebody and that the same person was there, um, who had blonde hair, blue eyes, who was white, was not questioned at all. They weren't held up to? They weren't held. They were just ignored. So I felt there was some racial profiling there. Mm. Anyways, I thought I'd share with you with my uh, quasi uh, criminal matter. There. Well, I, I don't know that you committed any offenses there. Um, it, it seems to me like you're the you would be what we call the complaining witness. I hesitate in my cases to use the word victim. Uh, <laughs> okay, but but that's just that's just uh, strategical type things. Um, we handle a lot of cannabis type cases, uh, okay. and we we give traditionally me, give me an have, example of one that you've most recently handled. Well, <laughs> please, please share. There's a very recent one that may or may not stem from the 416th Judicial District of Collin County. It was actually not a cannabis case. Okay. Um, it was a case where um, uh, the officer's probable cause was the odor of marijuana. And mm. uh, in Texas, uh, so, so everybody understands, um, Texas is one of the – so – when an officer pulls you over for whatever infraction, they've got to have a reason to pull you over. They've got to have reasonable suspicion that an offense was committed in their presence. Um, and if they do, and, and typically that's going to be a traffic violation more often than not, uh, it gets tricky when people are in the apartment complex and they're in a dark, shady spot, and then the police knocks on the window. It happens a lot too. I'm sure you've seen that fact pattern one or 500 times. Um, so uh, the police officer, if they if they get the odor of, uh, so so once the police officer uh, gets that probable cause or gets a, has a reason to pull you over, they can investigate that and really only that. They can also do some more administrative things. They can ask for your license. They can ask uh, for your insurance. And do you have to do, turn that over? Are you required by law? To you turn are that over? you are committing an offense, a class C misdemeanor, if you do not give. The, the police officer your identification okay so that so yes you are required to do that okay if the police officer does it now and I don't want to get too off in the weeds there are what what are called voluntary encounters your your interactions with police uh, for for your viewers if they are out there running around with sativa or these types of things in between states well, that's that, what we're having this conversation that's what we're having yeah, okay. that's what we're having this conversation so there are, so, so feel free to speak sure, openly okay we're going to nerd out okay so there are three levels of interactions with police yeah we have what are called voluntary encounters yep. which is the police officer talking to you on the street corner saying hey buddy you got a match 
or a light and, and, and then just striking up a conversation. Mm-hmm. You have no constitutional protections in that instance for the reason that you could walk away. Uh, it's a it's a voluntary consensual encounter. We're just two people talking. Sure. Uh, obviously, there's more psychological underpinnings than that. We're all programmed to respect authority, but that's what the law says that, that, that you have no you have no you, you have you're, you have the right to walk away. Um, if an officer has reasonable suspicion to detain you and investigate you, that's what's called an investigatory detention. That's the middle one. That's what a traffic stop is. Mm-hmm. Okay. The police officer has a limited ability to investigate that for which he suspects you are doing. And are there or, any- or if yes. you walk away in the first scenario and he follows you and keeps hounding you yeah. and then eventually stays on you, at that point you go from your voluntary to potentially. You can make that, yes. You can make that argument and, or what happens to uh, a lot of police. I've got a uh, uh, I've got a cousin uh, through marriage that's a police officer. Mm-hmm. I won't say the municipality, but you know, if, if you have a bunch of tattoos all over your face, they, they'll probably follow you all the way through the city limits, waiting for you to make a bad left-hand turn or something, right. and then, sure. then you know, then it's game on. Um, but, Are there any key buzzwords that that helps um, people to identify what's um, what goes from like a level one to a level two, as you descri- described? Well, you, if somebody is in that situation, they yep. can ask the police officer if they are being detained. Okay. Uh, that is a, that is a legal word of, of art. Um, w- whether they are free to leave, um, you know, okay. uh, a police officer, police officers don't have to be honest. Um, deception is a legitimate whether we like it or not, it's a Boy, that's a really high standard for you know for our <laughs> well, taxpayers to pay for well, <laughs> law enforcement officers to not be honest. Wouldn't you say? Uh, well, uh, I don't know about you, but I'm okay with them infiltrating okay. terror networks, and I'm okay with them infiltrating the mafia and drug networks and, sure. and things like that. And to do that, that's slightly dishonest. Okay. Now, when we take it to the street, and and we have a police officer who says things, and th- there's a lot of terms that you see. If you're not honest with me, I can't help you, okay? Uh, the police officer in most of those instances is being insincere. I don't know that I would call yeah, it This will go dishonest. so much better for you if you just tell me the truth. It's just the truth. Like, it'll be fine if you just right. tell me. Now, now he's already called the tow truck. I mean, we hear that later. <laughs> you know, we've already heard that, that cue. And what he means by helping you is I'm going to help your car onto this platform, yeah. and I'm going to help you into the jail. Uh, the third level is arrest. Uh, is sure. custodial interrogation or, or an arrest, and that's that's where Miranda is triggered, and that is that's that's a declaration of war. We have a an adversarial system of justice that police know about; they're trained about. That's what they do, but the people on the street don't know about that. That's what Miranda says: is that sure. all right? At this point, we're going to draw a line in the sand, and I'm I'm telling you that anything you tell me is gonna is gonna hurt you later. Yeah. Um, but uh, to the point. In, in this case, that, and of course, that that's had, that's yeah. that's at the stage where they tell you that you're entitled to legal representation, Correct. and that that's you know uh, when they put cuffs on you and they they right. they, they take that's you right. away. That's right. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, you are detained when you are no longer, in reasonable terms, free to leave. Yeah. You are in custody. A good rule of thumb is handcuffs. Typically, yeah. um, the, the cases we could the cases are a lot more complicated than that. But I think a good rule of thumb is. Is handcuffs. I don't know that I'll ever see a court say, "Well, you're in handcuffs. You're really not. You're, you're you, free to leave. You, you could have gone. You know, I've got your property, officer. These are yours." Yeah. Um, he forgot the key. He forgot. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, uh, but um, in this case, the officer smelled 
um, what she reported to be an, an odor of marijuana. And up until I would say 2019, whenever the legislative changes that came into Texas with uh, the difference between um, hemp and marijuana, redefining hemp under the agriculture code, I would say it was fairly clear cut under case law that the that odor would always get a police officer, frankly, into every inch of, of yeah. the car. Because he, the because reasoning then he can, being there yeah. isn't a smell that smells like that right. that's right. not an illegal substance. Yeah, like it's, it's such a distinct smell that they could say, when I smell the odor of marijuana, my training experience tells me there mm. must be marijuana because nothing else smells like that. Sure. And Farming Act changed it. Yeah. That's right. And, and, and to, to, to draw a distinction here. You know, of course, I, I can imagine yeah. it's made the police officers, um, their jobs a lot more challenging in the process. And Well, we're not sure. That's kind of what we're in the throes of right now. Yeah. Okay. It, it, it's really, uh, the courts are dealing with it and you know how that goes. Mm -hmm. uh, but to draw a distinction uh, it, to, to this factual scenario, let's say for argument's sake, so, so a police officer, if he pulls you over for not having your headlamps on, the police officer can investigate you for not having your headlamps on. He can ask for your ID. He can ask for this. He can ask for, you know, he can take 10, 15 minutes, run you for warrants. Okay. Mm -hmm. But if everybody's, you know, if there's a lot of nervousness, if there's inconsistent answers, if we're in a really crappy neighborhood, um, if we match the description of somebody who's been burglarizing vehicles in the area, then the police officer can, they, they develop, they can develop probable cause in other areas. Mm -hmm. And when they smell the odor of marijuana, Again, uh, up to 2019, very clear cut that that was probable cause to then investigate marijuana. Yep. And and the automobile exception to the Fourth Amendment says that a police officer does not need a warrant to go through every inch of that car. Uh, it, in that, in that, in does that, that include context. trunk space? Trunk space, yes, okay. it does. And uh, let's say, for instance, the officer detected, I don't know how they would do this, but cocaine instead of THC. Well. The case law says a police officer, through their training and experience, because of the odor, because of the distinct odor, can differentiate that and has probable cause. Mm -hmm. It would be very complicated for some other type of narcotic or more complicated if they don't have that. Uh, a lot of times you see officers who do, and Plano PD uh, it stands out to me. I mean, one thing, we, we're, she's a Collin County judge. I practice in Collin County. Um, we're very blessed to have the funding for our law enforcement that we do. They're really good at it. And they, they know how to ask questions, even if, even if it's not obvious and it's just their spidey sense, uh, they, they're very good at drawing it out of people. Well, where are you going and where are you coming? And I saw you move to the left and what's going on. Do you mind if I look through my, through your car, uh, things like that. And then, and then, it's game on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you for that description, Jeremy. And I'm sure as uh, I can only imagine, um, some of the cases have changed and evolved post farm bill. I would, I would, I would think, um, tell me about, I guess. Well, how so we're right in the middle of that. They okay. haven't actually, so all the case law previously upheld that that odor of marijuana was enough okay. then to get you to that next step. We don't have a case in Texas right now that I'm aware of, unless it's happened very recently, um, where that alone will get you there. So we're, we're testing them now. So I had a case um, that was the only reason was the odor of marijuana. Um, so I granted the motion to suppress 
the search that resulted from that because mm -hmm. now with the hemp farming bill saying, hey, you could be smelling CBD, which is a legal substance. Even they're saying in other jurisdictions, um, federal case law saying even dogs can't tell the difference. Mm -hmm. So if all you have, you don't have another traffic stop reason that you can articulate. You don't have anything else. Um, that was the one I granted that's working its way up the food chain, so to speak. Um, probably going to go all the way to our Court of Criminal Appeals in Texas. Um, I'm hoping to then give us direction because nobody knows what the answer is. Um, in other states, federal case law, other people that have already addressed this, they've mm -hmm. come back and said, because the only way to tell the difference is through a, a lab test, then that alone doesn't cut it other places. Texas hasn't gotten there yet. So Texas still has the odor um, alone is enough, mm -hmm. but it hasn't addressed that now right turn that we kind of made that said, okay, but the odor might be a legal substance. So is right. that anymore? So I actually have a case right now mm -hmm. okay. um, that's on its way up and we'll see what happens with it. But as we sit here right now in Texas, we don't have an answer to that question. And, okay. and I'll, I'll, I'll say this to, to add on to it. So uh, you, that would, uh, the, I'm familiar with the motion to suppress that you granted September, August, somewhere in that yeah. time frame. The, the fifth court of appeals issued an unpublished, unpublished capital U, meaning it's a suggestion to my friends on the fifth court of appeals. Uh, now, why would they pu publish something that's unpublished? Because uh, they're afraid and because they want to hide and because they want to throw out a balloon and say, well, this is what we think. And if, if, if you guys are really angry with us, then, well, we didn't really mean it anyway. This is an unpublished opinion. But, but her case, I think, is going to be uh, much distinguished because the motion to suppress in the case, it came out in December or January. Uh, it's an unpublished opinion, the one I was referring to, which kind of addressed the issue. Um, but in, in, in your instance, you granted the motion to suppress, so the court's going to be applying, I think, some different – there's going to be some different things. And, and for um, the listeners out there, yeah. the, the motion to suppress, in other words, Sorry about you're, this. you're essentially um, telling – You said that you had an extremely sophisticated audience I do. <laughs> I do. of knowledge-hungry – in I'm fact, just, in, fact just, in fact, they, I think they could they've all, they've already Googled most yeah, they, they're already <laughs> Googling that and they're, some of them are jurists themselves, but you know, for the ones that right. are not Googling out okay. there, how about that okay. is tell us a little bit about mm -hmm. the, um, the effects of the motion to suppress and what that really means. Right. So somebody like Jeremy comes to me and says <laughs> they can't use any of the evidence they found after they did their search because they shouldn't have done it in the first place. They didn't have probable cause to do it. Yep. So if I grant that motion, that says you can't use anything you found. Well, sure. in, in a case where you didn't have a traffic, it kind of ends the case, so to speak, because there's sure. not really anything else for the state to go off of. That's right. And, and so, my, so in other words, if you grant a motion to suppress and that evidence can't be used to, to, for, for the prosecutors to prosecute you, and there's not enough evidence to prosecute you, there's a high likelihood that the charges will be dropped and the, the person that's being prosecuted is free to go without any without any charges uh, right. against him or her. Yeah, and right? a lot of it depends on what the case is. So, you know, we have somewhere you might suppress some particular mm -hmm. piece of evidence. So you say, okay, you can't mm -hmm. move forward on that charge, but because then they also had all kinds of other things that got charged with multiple cases, they might move forward still on the other things. Um, but as to that one piece right. of it, maybe just one piece is out. Sometimes it's dispositive for the whole case if that was solely related to the only evidence they had that was going to prove up their case. Sure. But even if they were to move forward with the other charges, that piece of evidence still can't be used with those other charges because you've already suppressed it. Correct. Right. Generally. 
generally. Okay. Um, she so, su- she suppressed a phone for me last year. So. <laughs> well, that's a separate well. She thing. she followed the law is what she did uh, because the, there yeah. Was I was going to say that that sounds like I no, did you no, a big no, favor. no 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 no. The, the search warrant was bad, and we had case law right on the po- right on point. Uh, they were trying to get in, in this instance. They were trying to get into a phone, mm-hmm. and they the 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 at the search warrant um, said you're a drug dealer. And you have a phone, therefore we need to get in the phone. And there's mounds of case law that says they got to link it, mm-hmm. and they just didn't do that. Okay. So, and but that's how that's how law enforcement gets better at it. You know, they sure. they 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 get a negative ruling and they learn how to do it correctly. Uh, and the theory is is that one day when the same police officer walks in on a triple homicide and he has to get a a, a warrant, he's going to do it right. He's sure. going to get it right when it matters. Um, let's take it, let's shift a little bit, uh, away from the smell of, you know, the, the reasonable suspicion, because I think it's, um, I think in conclusion, Texas has not yet really established a whole lot of case law on, um, pre farm bill, post farm bill on these type of, um, search and seizure type cases based off of smell, right? We're still in the development stages and, um, you know, it sounds like obviously we're a couple steps behind some other states that has a more robust and more advanced um, yeah, case set of case law, which naturally, you know, it's 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 of course it's natural for them to do that because they've they've advanced in that particular industry or the cannabis industry um, for a longer period of time. But what about some of these other products that we see um, on the street, like your gummies? That's that's with. Delta ATHC or your CBD products or anything that's federally legal to be sold and that doesn't have any smell, right? Your tinctures and your gummies, your lozenges, they don't have a smell. So how do you, how do you handle, I mean, are there any issues with that? And do you, have you come across cases before your court that deals with that? My understanding is that there are certain police departments that actually have field test kits to where they can take a knife, they can cut off a piece of gummy and do a field test kit. And Really, how reliable are those test kits? I'll let you speak to reliability. <laughs> I haven't. Please, I, I haven't seen any of the. I have not seen a test kit situation. Um, I would, and at that level, I would hope that, that these things get tested through the court system. So, let's say a police officer. Let's say they do seize something—a gummy. I didn't know they they had lozenges. That sounds okay. Well, we need to point out in Texas, none of it's legal. <laughs> in, unless it's got the, with, with the right concentration, yes. yes. Unless correct. it qualifies uh, under uh, under the, the the laws. Assuming that it's illegal, mm-hmm. um, if a police officer field tests it and then makes an arrest and then makes an seizure based on that field test, it would have to go, it would go through the courts to some, hopefully some lawyer somewhere would test the reliability of that field test and then the courts can make make rulings mm-hmm. about those field tests. Mm-hmm. But a positive field test alone would be enough to get you probably, or, probably arrested. Probably, yeah. Sure. But, yeah. Uh, you know, I thought that's some of the problem they're having, back to the hemp farm bill, and I mm-hmm. promise we'll move on, but that's some of mm-hmm. it is that they don't have a reliable field test for that. So, so I've even heard of, um, what's a, what's a false positive to where they, they cut off a piece, they go in there and it it turns a certain color, let's just say purple. And that purple doesn't stick. It doesn't stay. And it quickly within two to three seconds, it disappears. It turns clear or white. And that's a, that's a false positive. So they have, they have variations of the, of the field test, but you know, it's, um, 
and, and I don't know how this because I'm not a litigator myself, but you know, it, it's interesting when, when, when you said, um, you know, none of this is, uh, legal, I guess in your opinions, how do you see these products evolving? What do you, what do you deem illegal or illegal in your courtroom? Is that a fair question? It's defined by the legislature. So okay. I don't have to do it. We just have to figure out what is it, what does it say? The, the question about your field test is, like I said, it, it very likely is going to get you arrested and then you mm -hmm. hire a good defense attorney. Sure. That defense attorney is going to have it tested. And if they get a test result from a reliable lab that is different, then that's exactly what you're paying them for is then go to the prosecutor and say, hey, you're going to have a problem with this. Because your field test I'm going to be able to talk about is probably unreliable. And then I got an actual lab test that mm -hmm. says it isn't. You got a high probability that that's going to get dismissed. Um, mm -hmm. But the problem is you got to go through all the trouble, right? So on yeah. the civil side of things, people say that all the time. Like, you know, they're suing me and, you know, I didn't do anything. It's like, yeah, but you still get to spend a lot of time and money to prove right. that and get your case sure. dismissed or ended sure. or whatever. So I think that's... Um, in that scenario, it's not like you're going to be able to talk the officer out of your field test is unreliable. Here's this article right. out of my magazine that I read that says that you're, you're just you're going to have to go through the process to do that. Yeah. Um, one of the issues um, that we're seeing more and more is that things that are labeled at legal levels of CBD um, actually aren't. So we've we've got a case right now. It's not in my court. Um, it's a defense attorney that we work with that we were talking about a case he's got where a younger um, person had bought um, a product. I think it was a vape. I can't remember. Um, that was marked. The packaging on it mm -hmm. was underneath the levels where which should have been okay. Um, got picked up for it. They tested it. It was over. The investigator that was retained by that defense attorney went to the exact same store, bought the exact same product, mm -hmm. had it tested in a lab. Um, and it was also over. So the, the, the point they're trying to make and the defense is going to be, look, what, what are you supposed to do when somebody buys what is marked reliably as a legal product, they mm -hmm. think, um, but then it's not. And I think that's something people need to be really careful about mm -hmm. is you can still be charged. You may even still be able to be held liable um, for a product you think is legal um, because it's a bit of the wild west on how we're marking things, how we're testing things, what yeah. we're calling it. Is it really reliably what it says it is? You got CBD that has nothing. It's olive oil or you've got <laughs> CBD that's on the other end of the yeah. spectrum that's got more of what it's not supposed to have that's going to get you in trouble. So everybody needs to use caution when you think you're getting a legal product. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's funny you say that. I just actually got a call from another um, criminal defense attorney who will remain unnamed. He said, he calls me up. He says, hey, listen, I have a client that has been charged with um, Delta 8 THC. And um, Actually, I, I take that back. It was actually Delta 9 THC, but it's derived from hemp. And of course, uh, a lot of the Delta 8, Delta 9, Delta 10 uh, THC products, what they're doing is they're taking CBD and they're adding uh, acid, solvent, and heat, and then converting the molecular structure um, from CBD into the, the D9, D8, D10 THC, which will still get you high, but because of how the farm bill is written and because of the language it's written, it's, um, it, it's deemed federally legal if it's derived from um, a hemp-derived cannabinoid. But it's, it's creating um, a psychoactive reaction through the converted cannabinoid that's 
technically an ancillary cannabinoid. But in the long story short, he, he says, hey, listen, the, C, the, the, the certificate of analysis says this. And is it, in, is it industry standard to have an inaccurate certificate of analysis? And I started laughing. He says, what's so funny? I said, I said it's, it happens all the time. I said, this, this, is, this is an industry that you're looking at a lot of labs who don't know what they're doing. Um, now there are granted there are plenty of labs that know exactly what they're doing, and you know the key is to match the certificate of analysis reading or the the, the report to match what's actually the composition of the product. But the problem is that it doesn't always match up, and that's a it's a it's a pretty regular occurrence, unfortunately. Um, let me let me kind of throw out here, and this this may although your audience, like you described, is very sophisticated and on top of these things probably as much as we are. Um, but how, how, a, how a drug case works in court. So Texas, well, the U.S. has what's called the corpus delecti rule, mm -hmm. body of the crime. Uh, what that means is that essentially the, the, the state has to prove that an offense was committed. And that's, that, that can be sort of difficult sometimes. Uh, and, and, and conceptually, it can be kind of hard. In a drug case, what that means is they have to prove that it's a drug. They have to prove that what you have is illegal. If I buy a bunch of oregano from somebody, but I think it's pot, I'm not committing a crime even though I believe that I have it. In fact, mm -hmm. we had a fake drug scandal a long time ago in Dallas where police officers were grinding up sheetrock and selling it on the street and stinging people and arresting them because they thought it was cocaine. The courts came back and said that's legally impossible. Even if these people thought they were possessing cocaine, mm -hmm. it's just not cocaine. Right. You're, it's, you're, it's just not a crime to possess sheetrock. That's a corpus delecti violation. There was just no crime. In fact, there was no crime. Um, so in, in, in these scenarios, in the scenario with the field testing, in the scenario uh, that, that we're talking about, is it Delta 8, is it Delta 9, all these things, everybody should understand that the, the state has to test these things. Mm -hmm. And they have to do it in a scientifically reliable manner in a court of law. Now, that field test, judge is right probably gets you arrested. It's probably good enough for the day job uh, for them to take yeah. you and put you in the car and then arrest you. But they're going to have to send it to a lab, a real lab uh, that, that can come back and that can, that can verify in open court um, what that drug is and then whether or not it's illegal. I'll give you a quick war story because we're about war stories, right? We're, that's how we learn, Jerry. So uh, I, I tried a case uh, in front of uh, Judge Greg Willis in County Court at Law Number Six. Um, it's a couple of years ago, then. It's been a minute. It's been a minute. Um, and just for the audience, this is in Collin County. This is in Collin County, yep. USA, the center of the universe. And Judge <laughs> Greg Willis, while we're chuckling, is is now our Collin County DA. He's now our elected oh. DA and has been for. A decade. <laughs> yeah. um, so I'm aging myself. And so that was, you know, that was about 10 or 15 pounds ago, right? I thought yeah. back when you had hair. Yeah. Then you had, <laughs> I might have. When you had a lot more hair. Right. Um, so. well, I just cut it for this. Um, so <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> what happened in that case was my client was a young lady and I, I'm probably going to butcher some of the details. She got, uh, she got arrested for having a handful of pills. Mm -hmm. Um, and we were set to go to trial. We went to trial. I noticed there was no lab analyst, no, no lab analysis on it. And actually, maybe there was now that I think about it, but I had objected to it. Long story short, uh, they could have gotten the, the drugs in through the actual chemist, the actual lab person. Uh, they neglected to bring them in to trial. Uh, 
and and I kind of realized that fairly quickly in the case. And the prosecutor, poor thing, been on the job for a month, and the police were out in the in the docket room on the internet on drugs.com looking at different pill markings and they were going to come into court and they were going to testify, well, this is whatever it was, right? right. Um, Oxycontin or, or, or whatever it was. So they go in there and they try to do that. I shut it all down, uh, objected to it. And I'm sorry, your honor, this is hearsay. It's speculation. He doesn't know that we need a lab test. And, and judge Willis at the time knew I was right. And the prosecutor, they kept trying 18 different ways. And, and he just, and he's, very proper, very proper. Uh, and he's, and he's, look, it tells the prosecutor, look, you can ask this a million times. And the only way you're going to win this trial is if Mr. Rosenthal is asleep at the switch. And so far that really hasn't happened. And I think he sees the issue here. Can we wrap this up? And sure enough, it was a not guilty point being, they did not prove, they did not prove the corpus delecti. They did not prove that there was a crime committed. They have to get into evidence. The fact that that drug whether it be cannabis or anything else, um, is in fact what it purports to be, what the government alleges that it is. So anybody who's out there worried that they're going to get arrested for something and jailed for something and put it in and have their life ruined over something that's not in fact illegal, um, that's your, I mean, I hate saying that it falls back on your lawyer, but there are safeguards in place. Um, there, there are safeguards in place for all of these things. Yeah. So, you know, I, now, well, to follow up on that though, and back to what you were talking about with the edibles and lozenges yeah. and stuff like that, when, when you hear people say they've effectively legalized it, it's because the cost lab time, everything else that it takes to say, Hey, I found a guy with two gummies in his pocket are they really going to go to the trouble and expense of having to come up with a lab test that does that? And if you got a couple laws and, you know, so that that's where when people are saying you've effectively um, legalized it is because the expense to that jurisdiction and the, the will, um, mm -hmm. even if they had the money and the time to pursue that is, is probably on the decline for what are relatively small levels. You know, it used to be you catch somebody with, one joint in their pocket, they were still going to get prosecuted. They were still going to get their misdemeanor. They were still, because, um, again, it kind of takes us back to, is it an illegal substance? And you can tell by looking at it and smelling it and everything else you could. Um, but now when you're talking about stuff that come in these different forms, are they really going to go to the trouble and the expense? And that remains to be seen. And so far in Texas, it's jurisdiction by jurisdiction. I tell you, Collin County is still prosecuting even what in other jurisdictions would be considered very low level um, possession cases, but Austin and other places aren't. Um, oh, wow. Okay. So are you saying that in Collin County, they're prosecuting Delta ATHC cases or like hemp derived cases or that? I'm not sure um, okay. because those generally aren't going to get up to the felony level. So I don't have experience with it. I don't know yeah, if yeah, yeah. I anecdotally, I'll, you know, I'll, misdemeanors it's anecdotal. Yeah. Um, I have, we have, I'll tell you this much, I see much less of it, um, even in Collin County. Um, and, and is that because of the expense? Is that because police are not, uh, are, are not as, as aggressive about it? I would say kind of like the case that we were talking about earlier, I think marijuana, I think what you're going to see is that it's more of a reason or a justification for a police officer 
to get somebody who is probably, frankly, up to more dastardly things than just possessing marijuana. Or if a police officer just wants to get into somebody's business, a teenager, or and to send a message, um, we see we see much less uh, cannabis entry level cannabis. Uh, prosecutions. I have not seen a Delta Eight prosecution mm. probably in in at least since at least since it's become a hot topic. Sure. Um, and there's been sure. analysis to differentiate what's Delta Eight and Delta Nine. Uh, so I, I so while Collin County I think still does it, uh, I I I think that they have hopefully stuck their finger into the wind and see that well, you know the juice isn't worth the squeeze. And I'll and the, the jurors I'll tell you this much. Um, the jury panels, you know, I, I, I think the jurors are probably against these things right now. I don't mm-hmm. think juries want to see these types of cases prosecuted. And if they do, I think they would much rather see people get help um, for, 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 for any type of an addiction. So the short answer is, is I, I, I do think that there has been a I, – I, I think that there's a lot less – Sure. Misdemeanor marijuana prosecutions. I'm sure there's still some. Uh, okay. We don't see them as much. Um, but and since you mentioned um, mm-hmm. Judge Willis and a couple other mm-hmm. uh, couple couple other um, names uh, in in the court system, in the fifth name year, dropping is a big deal well, in the legal practice too. <laughs> exactly. What what are the sentiments uh, of other judges? Um, can you can you speak to that on you know what's the general consensus on how other judges are viewing uh, the the evolution of the cannabis industry and some of the challenges that come with it? Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, my job is if you meet the statutory and legislative cutoffs, mm-hmm. then it doesn't matter what I think about it. Um, you know, and and I know. All of our judges are the same way. We're going to, till the legislature chooses to change the laws or do something different about it, um, it is what it is. And if you meet that, you know, statutory guideline, it is. I can tell you one place that there's maybe a little bit more leeway amongst judges is in family law cases. So what we get a lot, so, so they were not talking about criminal prosecution, right? right. So that's a, that's a different animal. In a family law case, you get maybe somebody that's going to split up. And what we see a lot is... We did gummies together. We smoked weed together. Now we're getting divorced, and you, you are a raging <laughs> pothead that right. is incapable of taking care of our children, and therefore you should have no access to our children because you are going to test positive for marijuana. And inevitably, then the boomerang they, they turn right around and they're like, "Well, I only ever smoked it with you, and it right. was your friends that got us in in the first, you know." Right. So it happens a lot. So that's where you'll see a little bit more variance among how judges treat it, um, mm-hmm. maybe in the family law sector. Criminal side, you meet the guidelines. Sure. You know, jury finds you guilty, you're guilty, and we're going to go to sentencing. Family law side of it, that's where you start to weigh it. Like, okay, look, if you're both doing it, what do I do? I'm like, going to send your kid to CPS because you're, you're both, you know, engaging in the same behavior. Now, you start getting into pretty much anything other than that. Um, and And... Let me clarify, disclaimer, I'm not saying we don't care <laughs> if they're doing things that are illegal. I'm saying when you got two people doing something like that, it makes it really hard in a custody case to say which one of you then. Right. So it's sort of like you nullify each other on that one. We're going to toss that issue out, and I'm going to have to look at other factors to figure out what do I do with this kiddo if you guys are still both saying the other one's not capable of 
parenting um, will move on. So that's an area where I do think you will see a little bit more. Um, some judges care a lot about it, even in the family law cases. Um, they can't do anything about it criminally at that mm -hmm. point, but they care a lot about it. But if you've got one parent that is doing it and one that doesn't, you know, it's all how do you how are you going to weigh it? Um, and but, but really, the issue for me is it tends to get nullified when they're both doing it because you don't really have much to go on from that point in that one particular. Now they might have a million other reasons why they're. Do you find can I uh, if I can? Do you find in some instances in those family cases that they that it causes collateral issues, maybe perhaps with one parent losing a job, starting it's starting to affect things, and then that, that helps you kind of weigh in, in that instance? Yeah, and it's something we haven't talked about um, is, you know, the conventional wisdom used to be that it wasn't a gateway drug. Um, I have a drug court now. Um, it's a it's for folks that have alcohol or drug cases so at the felony level, it's a third DWI or it's possession cases, um, maybe things like theft related to stealing things to them by drugs. And we're trying to identify kind of high-risk, high-needs folks that are either substance abuse is their issue or mental health is their issue, or they've been self-treating their mental health, they don't know it, um, through their substance use, things like that. Um, and so we're trying to identify those kind of folks. But in that, I will tell you 100%, and this, this is new to me, and it's been going up, 100% of those folks are telling me they started with marijuana, and now they're into meth and heroin and other stuff. So because it's easier now to get higher levels of concentration of that, it's, you know, it's it's not your 1960s parents' tippy ditch weed, you know, at 4% or whatever. So it is more of a gateway. So then in the family cases, that's ultimately what you find is the person that maybe it was fine. They were doing that instead of as a couple, instead of maybe drinking as much on the weekends. But then one of them gets more and more and more and more into it. And then that's where it does make a significant mm -hmm. impact in their family law case. It certainly can. So I'm curious. Um, so in those scenarios, because you're looking at um, child custody issues, you know, safety for the kids, do you see more of that abuse of cannabis products and versus, say, alcohol? Or is it about the same? Or because, I mean, at the end of the day, they're both, you know, a parent can equally abuse alcohol together as they do, right. you know, smoke weed together. Um, is there is there one that... that um, that over that essentially trumps the other as far as the frequency of the abuse, in your opinion? Um, I would say a lot of times they go hand in hand. Okay. So we don't see a lot of people where it's just alcohol or cannabis products. It's basically if they've got the issue with the cannabis products that are then bringing themselves into the family law case, it's because they're doing both. So they've got alcohol and um, some other kind of addiction issue probably. Uh, so it's a lot of both of that. Now, in both cases, you know, we treat them the same. So we'll say if you're going to be around your kids, maybe if you have shown to have a significant issue with alcohol, then you're not allowed to drink alcohol while you're around your kids. We're also going to put a similar injunction in place that says you can't use, you know, illegal substances, prescriptions, you know, take pills you don't have a prescription for, stuff like that. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's as much an issue um, prescription drugs is just as much an issue, frankly, hmm. um, and perhaps probably even more so yeah. um, than any any of the cannabis 
I bet those cases are tough. I mean, there's just so many moving parts in in those type of family law cases. Yeah. The family law stuff is, you know, it's hard because you're, look, I would, I would tell everybody, figure out what's going to work for your family because you're asking me to look at the 10,000 foot view and with all the mudslinging that's going on, you know, everybody got along until they didn't. Everybody was happy eating the gummies together until they're not, you know, it's, and then you got all kinds of finger pointing and everything else. And then somebody like me has to come in and try to figure out, you know, the kids were fine when we were doing gummies together. (laughs) Suddenly the kids are in danger because so-and-so is doing. Yeah. She's only got 200 others just like it to worry about. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yes. 20, 2,400 things a year rolling right along. So yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's all well and good until it's not. That's right. Um, And and then it gets dumped in our lap and you want me to try to figure that out, which is why nobody's ever happy. Um, I got a million one-star reviews on Yelp. (laughs) It's like the towing company. (laughs) That's right. Those guys score low too. So Jamie, I'm curious. I mean, with, with, all these different um, changes mm-hmm. going on mm-hmm. and the laws changing, of course, our, our core systems changing. Of course, um, we have law enforcement involved. They're having to make um, judgment calls, mm-hmm. you know, out in, out in the street. Do you see any type of um, – what type of bad judgment calls have you seen or do you see any type of like police uh, um, law, law enforcement abuse? That's uh, – so – I'll say this. Um, this is our, our court system is imperfect, um, but it is a it's the best system that I know of to continually test our current understanding of things and our current knowledge of things. And it's a process for it's a process for everybody, and that goes all the way down to the police officers. So uh, so and that's just it, it, it's a hard. It's a hard question that you've asked. Um, I like asking you hard questions. That's how you are, you man. That's I'm, I'm glad you asked him. That, that's how you are. Thanks. See, it, it makes um, him go, uh, you know. So that, That's uh, how I like to see him. But if you uh, – most police officers uh, – being a police officer is a very hard job. Um, but we do see police uh, – we do see law enforcement abuse at the they, same time. They are subject to – they're humans. Um, and – some of them can have a bad day. Some of them can have a hard day. Some of them can misunderstand the law. Uh, some of them can have a communication or an issue with a, a person that they pull over where if you've ever had a conversation with somebody and you're just not on the same page and you, you ever walk away from a conversation where you think, man, we just had two completely different conversations, me and this person. That happens. If, if you're married, you know what we're talking <laughs> right? about. Right. <laughs> um, and that, that happens on a very regular basis in, in, in police work because police – are in their bubble. They have their worldview. They hang out with other police officers. They talk the lingo, and they're 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 interacting with people with completely different social backgrounds, yeah. with completely different problems, who are in their own world and in their own headspace. And so, when you see cases like Sandra Bland, uh, which uh, that's a long story, but I read uh, I read a very good book that that really broke that that interaction down. And said that that these two people were just they they just didn't communicate, and mm-hmm. it wound up with her getting arrested wrongly. Uh, she was mentally ill, and then she ended up dying in jail. We actually have in Texas what's called the Sandra Bland Act now, uh, but that happens a lot, and it happens a lot in 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 drug cases and drug interactions. I don't think it's because a cop is 
I, I, I don't believe that people are good or bad. I believe we're all good and bad. I, th- I believe we're all people. And I think that, that police officers have a very hard job and the psychological underpinnings are very difficult for me to understand. I've never done, I've never done what they've done. But if they're wrong and they think they're right, they can be very dangerous. Um, or in some instances, like the George Floyd case, um, I, I think that dude was just completely desensitized to, to how he was treating people. And I don't think, I think tragically he didn't view George Floyd as a person and that's why he acted the way he did and that's why he ignored his cries. That can happen to anybody. Um, to, to your point, when it comes to the drug issues and the drug cultures, I really do think police are out there doing their best, but the whole system is going to have to, I mean, there's just been a lot of earthquake-like changes in Texas law, and we just don't know how it, how it shakes out quite yet, pardon mm-hmm. the pun, but we just don't, we just don't know how these things are going to settle. I don't see, um, and, and, and it's incumbent on police to be educated about the issues, to I was just going to say to that, go to their updates. Right. To, I was just going to say right. that is that I mean, as police officers, they do have a duty to the public to be educated on these issues. What, right, and and they learn when I cross examine them. They learn when she makes her rulings. They learn when they're in the classroom with the DA's office. They learn when I get a warrant and I say you're not there. You know, you're not going to get there. I'm not signing your warrant because yeah. you know mm-hmm. you haven't really met that burden. I think you know an, another thing that is I, I'm seeing more and more and more is the mental, the mental health aspect of this. So I said that earlier, a lot of people are self-medicating. Maybe they don't know they're depressed. They don't know they're bipolar. They just know they don't feel right. And they end up taking drugs as a mm-hmm. result as because they don't have the access to the appropriate health care or mental health care. So our, our police officers are in a really bad scenario when they arrive at a scene and they have somebody that's either on drugs mm-hmm. or having a mental health break they have zero um, facilities to, to deal with that. There's nowhere to take them. They don't have a lot of legal rights sometimes to take them, but they're stuck with a person that's clearly not okay, potentially, mm-hmm. um, you know, if, if we got a really high threshold for where they can even take somebody in on a mental health, for mental health reasons. Mm-hmm. So if, if they're that person that they can't say at that moment or a danger themselves or others, but they're clearly having a mental health break or are clearly um, on some kind of substance that's changing their behavior in a way that we have no, we have nothing there's nowhere yeah. for them to take them there's no ability for them to do mm-hmm. anything with them and then think about you know what what would you do it's a we've got a Jeremy's right we've got an imperfect system but it's what we've got and everybody I think from at least what we see in our jurisdiction is doing their level best without a lot of the tools. And, and that's something that I think needs to get addressed at the state level. It's giving, we need legislation to, to address what do you do when you come across one of these yeah. people having a break, whether mm-hmm. it's whether it's a mental break, whether it's a drug-induced break, what do you do with it? Because just arresting them and taking them to jail isn't the right answer. And right. that's exactly what leads to the kinds of things he's been talking about because those people are not going to be compliant with a police officer, what the police officer is asking them to do or telling them they need them to do. They, they, they're they incapable of doing it, but we have no solution for the officer either right. who's trying right. to look out for the public Th- safety. That's, that can be tough. And it sounds like it could. it's very much of a legislative um, and resource issue at at the end of the day um, for obviously creating those options for the, not only the police officer, but the individual at issue. Right. 
Um, I think we're running close um, to the end of this uh, episode. Just any last words, any last thoughts on this particular industry and how it's moving forward, and obviously in your capacity as a criminal defense attorney. Uh, well, I may be speaking a little out of turn. Uh, not, well, you do that all the time, so <laughs> please proceed. I may be speaking a little <laughs> out of turn when I say this, but I think that there's a consensus, uh, certainly amongst, I think, the lawyers, uh, that this is coming. Yeah. Legalization is coming. And when I have a client who comes in and, you know, and I'm like, I'll tell them sometimes, look, you, you, you may be a patriot here, you know. <laughs> In, in 20 years or 30 years, you may be the Johnny Appleseed uh, or Johnny Appleweed of, of <laughs> what like it that. is that we, of this sector. What you're doing today is illegal um, and it's a crime. Um, so we've got to obviously deal with that. But I think that I think that what is going to happen is kind of what she's talking about and what she's discussed. So all these things may very well come to fruition and they may be legalized and they may be regulated and God willing, a good source of tax revenue uh, for, for our community, but it's going to carry with it a lot of other collateral issues that we're going to have to deal with family cases, social services, mental illness. Um, I think that all of the, so, so in, in the, in the grand scheme of things uh, it, it just changes the kaleidoscope. It doesn't, mm -hmm. it doesn't, necessarily eliminate the one image. Yeah. Any last words, Judge? Yeah, I think kind of to piggyback on that, um, treatment is something that I think I wish we could get ahead of as we get into this. So you think about how many people have alcohol yeah. um, addiction problems, then if we're going to say this is similar and the effect is similar and what's the big deal, people are going to get drunk, they're going to do this. Well, I don't think we're adequately treating the alcohol problems that people have and we don't have the resources for that. So now, you know, I, I agree. I think we're headed that direction. It's going to all end up legal. But, you know, especially when you get kids that are equating it with alcohol and depending, they're, they're uneducated, they don't know what they're getting their hands on, they don't understand mm -hmm. what these percentages mean, they just think, hey, I'm going to eat a gummy and don't realize that maybe the effect of that gummy is going to be the same thing as you drinking a fifth of something. It's, mm -hmm. it's not always apples and oranges and that's how, you know, so education is going to be important to tell people, you know, when it's legalized, like know what you're doing, know what you're getting into. Um, and be careful about addiction because we do it. I, I, like I said, in, in my experience, in my drug court, and it's, it's trying to, treat as many people as we can, but it's, it's small. We can, we do it at our lunch hour on Thursdays. It's a volunteer thing. Um, basically with us trying to identify and help people. I wish we had whole courts that were doing this and trying to deal with folks that, you know, addiction is their problem, not being a criminally, you know, minded or, or leaning person. Um, so yeah, I think the treatment of all of that awareness of all of it is going to be a big, needs to be a big push right along with, if yeah. people are pushing to legalize it. Well, very good. Thank you so much for both of your insights. Um, it was, you know, it was, it was great to learn about the, ju the judicial system and obviously from the perspective of a criminal defense attorney. Uh, I thought it brought a lot of value to the audience and um, thanks for coming. Thank you. All Thank right. you. Thank you for coming. Bye-bye.